This Torah class is brought to you by TorahAnytime.com. So there's a there's a there's a reason to thank. There's a reason to say that in this terrible gallus that we're in, that there's still people who come out on a tishab of night and a tishab of day to remember the destruction of the base of Mikdash, to show that Yiddish guy is still alive. I asked my Rebbe, Rabbi Gamliel, what's the thought of Tishabav? And he said that the thought that we all need to think about Tishabav is that HaKadosh Baruch Hu, our father, has no house. He's homeless. But even worse, we're the ones who threw him out of his house. And when you can think about a child whose father has given them everything, has built a beautiful house to be with them, and then his own children come along and throw him out of his own house. What a tragedy. And that's the tragedy of, of Tishabav. And that's the tragedy of Echa. But what does that have to do with us? We're not the children that threw him out of his house. The children that threw him out of his house lived 2,000 years ago. So it's very sad. It's a sad story. But why are we all sitting on the floor? And why are we in so much pain? And it's kind of very sad. It's very sad if a child throws his own father out of the house. But imagine that after he throws him out of the house, the father comes back every year. And every single year, the child throws him out again. So Gamil said something very scary. He said that Akash destroyed his base on Migdash 2,000 years ago. But really, and this I heard from Abshim Shimpinkas, really he got closer to us after he destroyed the base on Migdash. Because when he was in the base on Migdash, so you had to be a Kohen to get into the Beis HaMikdash. And you have to be a Kohen Gadol to get into the Kodesh HaKedashim. What did Hashem do? He said after the Beis HaMikdash was destroyed, Okay, I'm out of this house, but now I'm coming to your house. I'm going to live with every single Jewish family. And every woman and every man there's going to be a Kohen because I'm going to be in their house. So you don't have to be a Kohen. And you don't have to be a Kohen God all. You just have to be a Jew. And every single Jewish house in Flatbush and in Bottle Park and in Queens and in the Five Towns and in Wichita, Kansas and Israel and anywhere in the world in Australia and South Africa and any Jewish house in the world who's moving in it wasn't like that in the time of the Beis HaMikdash. So Shem Bingus said that after the destruction of the Beis HaMikdash, Hashem actually got closer to us. So what's the pain? The pain is that our houses look like the destruction of the Beis HaMikdash. It's a very sad kinah that we're saying tomorrow. It's the kinah about Titus HaRasha. And how Titus HaRasha he had what's called hobnailed boots, whatever they were, and he scratched the floor of the base of Mingdash, and he took a zaina, a prostitute, 
and he took her into the Kodesh HaKadoshim and he did a terrible thing in the Kodesh HaKadoshim and everybody was sure that the Kodesh HaKadoshim if the Kohen Gondol did the Malachan Yom Kippur a little bit wrong he died not of an Avihu they did something a little wrong a fire came out in the Kodesh HaKadoshim and killed them so the Jews were all standing there saying oh now Titus is going to get his he took a sword and he cut the parochas and blood came running out of the parochas Hashem wanted him to believe that he killed God and he took this harlot this, this zaina into the Kodesh HaKadoshim where the Kohen Gadol went once a year and if he had one little wrong makshav he would die and they were all sure that now Hashem is not going to be patient with him and he's going to kill him and the zaina and nothing happens and, there's a, and, and, and in the kiddush tomorrow how Yimmy Yahoo cries how everybody cries about this terrible defamation with Beis HaMikdash our houses, girls, our houses is today our houses is the Beis HaMikdash and the Shekhinah goes through the world looking for a place to rest in each one of our houses and it says that the Kodesh, not the Kodesh HaGadoshim, but the Kodesh is a person's ta- the Shulchan is a person's Shulchan. And, 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 the, and the menorah is when a woman lights Shabbat candles. And the house itself is considered the Kodesh. And the master bedroom of the house is considered the Kodesh HaGadoshim. The Makam HaZivug is called the Kodesh HaGadoshim. The parents, the bedroom where they are, that is called the Kodesh HaGadoshim. And how many of us bring Zainais, prostitutes, so to say, into our Kodesh HaKadoshim. We have televisions that bring Nachriyais, that bring strangers into our bedrooms, and internet into our bedrooms, and DVDs into our bedrooms. Are we any different than Titus HaRasha, who brought the Zaini into the Beis HaMidosh in the Kodesh HaKadoshim? We are doing the same things to the Shekhinah that this terrible Russia did. And HaKadosh Baruch Hu said, make your house into a Beis HaMikdash for me. Is our house a Beis HaMikdash? It says that if a Kayin, when he was bringing a carbon in the Beis HaMikdash, if he would have a Machzara Zara, if he was bringing a carbon Eula, and he thought it was a carbon Shlamim, it was Piggle, and the whole carbon was worthless. One wrong Machzara. How many times in our house, our children and ourselves, we eat food that we don't make a bracha on. That when we make the bracha, we're thinking about my phone or, or my internet or my, all my craziness in my life. And we're not thinking the machshava of Baruch Atah Hashem, blessed you Hashem, Elokeinu, Melech the God of the whole world. Shahakal, Nyebet, Baro, everything is your word. And meanwhile, when we're making this bracha, we're listening to everybody else's word. That's piggle. The bracha is worthless. It's piggle. The food is not kosher. So to say, the bracha, if you don't make the correct bracha, it's called geneva. It's called stealing. How many of us don't stand there and make our children make brachos? So they grow up and they don't make brachos. How many of us stand there and we don't tell our children to make a bracha so mommy and tati can say in amen? So anything that they're eating in the Kaidish Kedoshim will utterly make that for Shachati Besoycham. We ourselves are destroying the Beis Hamigdash, which is our house every single year and once again this Tishabov was sitting here again on the floor and the Shekhinah is looking for a place to rest and it can't find a place to rest and it just wants to rest amongst us and we don't understand 
How come we feel so far away? How come our children can say, I don't want to be religious anymore? I don't believe there's a Hashem anymore. Because they're living in a house of titus. With an achriya, all the strangers, through the internet, through everything else that we have on our... All these strangers that are coming in, magazines and books, and everything that we bring into our house, these are all strangers in the base of Migdash. So of course they're far away, they don't understand, they're not connected. So Rabbi Gamliel said, we have to sit and cry that we're destroying Hashem's house. He's coming to our house, and he's looking, tati tati, he's looking to his kindleach to make a house where he could live. And he's turned away by every single door. You don't belong here, this is not a place for you. We have a lot of other things going on in this base of Migdash. There's no place for you, he said. What a terrible, terrible feeling for a father every single year for 2,000 years to be turned away. As a parent, anyone that's a parent in this room can understand that feeling. We don't, we don't even want to understand that feeling. What it means to come to your children, not only that, but that they themselves, through their actions, actually burnt and destroyed your house. And now you have no house, and you're like, you destroyed my house, so now I'm coming to you to live by no, I destroyed your house and you still can't live by me. He says, that's how the Shekhinah feels every single year. And that's the message Rabbi Gamliel said. That's what, that's what we have to think about. It's not the destruction of the Beis HaMikdash, everybody. That's just the symptom. Those were, as it says, as Yemi always said, those were rocks and stone and wood. It had no life. The thing that was sitting on the floor and that we're mourning is what destroyed the Beis HaMikdash. Not the destruction of the base of Mingdush, but what destroyed the base of Mingdush, and it's still not fixed. You know, Chas Shalom, someone has cancer, Chas Shalom, in, in, in their foot. And the doctor says to stop it from spreading, we have to amputate your foot. So he says, okay, listen, I'll give up the bottom of my, you know, the bottom of my foot to stay alive for the rest of my life. So they amputate his foot. And then they find, a month later, that's all over his body. And the amputation was wasted. What a terrible tragedy. The amputation 2,000 years ago, the Kishbar who cut off, he cut off the Beis HaMikdash. The Beis HaMikdash was destroyed. But that was supposed to teach us a lesson for the reasons the Beis HaMikdash was destroyed was sinas chinam, was hatred, was jealousy, was hurting another kid, was saying what's your about somebody. Not having hakar satov, not having appreciation for somebody else—that was the disease. And Hashem said, "We'll cut it off. We'll amputate. We'll destroy the base hamigdash to save Chayyishrael. They'll learn a lesson. They'll do tshuva." But ladies, look what happened. They amputated the base hamigdash, and the disease got worse. What a waste of the destruction of a base hamigdash! It was supposed to teach us a lesson, and now two thousand years later, this disease. Of, 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 of not getting along and of talking with Shinhara and of being jealous got much worse. So we're crying that the Beit HaMidrash was destroyed and there was no lesson that was learned. There's a... Tonight, actually, if you said Kinnis, you're very sad. The first Kinnis, Aleph, number one. Zuchah Hashem Mehayulano. Remember Hashem what has befallen us? Oy Over and over we say, Oy Hashem, remember what has befallen us. And it goes through all the different things that happened in the times of the Beis Hamidish when it was destroyed. Today I sat at my desk and I wrote a modern day. 
I'd like to read it to you. What has happened to us that today to bring a child into the world we have organizations we have infertility we have organizations to help people have children so many people today are having a hard time having children something that we never had before in Klai Yisrael because we're sitting in Golos how many young women miscarry their pregnancies and they're that they were bringing a life into the world and it was lost if we had the base Hamikdash, there were no miscarriages it says the Mishnah the Shekhinah feels all the pain when people don't have children and they're davening the Shekhinah feels the pain of every Jew when a, when a woman has a miscarriage and her hopes are dashed for that moment the Shekhinah is in so much pain premature babies so many you go to hospital so many Jewish kids that are born early that are on life support systems preemies a woman who carries a child for nine months and has a stillborn this never happened in the time of the Beis Hamikdash. Klai Yisrael is suffering the Shekhinah is suffering children with learning disabilities having to take medicine suffering in school believing that they're not able to do what they need to do children with physical disabilities the problem of children not getting into yeshiva not being able to get into school when was this ever a problem in Europe ask people who lived in Europe this was never a problem this is something new in this gallows the pain of children of low self-esteem of feeling they don't belong the pain of growing into a teenager today instead of being excited about growing up how fearful there's so much pain drugs in the Jewish world today so many, so many young teenagers and even adults that are addicted to drugs immorality between boys and girls bringing impurity to each other anorexia children that have a problem being able to eat I went to see some girls mamish older girls who are not able to eat who believe that they, they see themselves in a different light how the Shekhinah is suffering this is, this is the Shekhinah's daughters oh, disbelief in Hashem when was there ever atheism in Yiddishkeit at the age of 13, 14 and 15 never existed rebellion against our parents Chilo Shabbos young women and men cutting themselves the Shekhinah watches how they're cutting themselves to get out of their emotional pain how could the Shekhinah handle this that self-inflicted self-inflicted damage to a person's body this was never something that happened in Yiddishkeit these are all new things that are happening because we are so far from the Beis Hamikdash. Emotional abuse, sexual abuse, physical abuse. And the Shekhinah is watching all this. What has happened? These are all things that are happening in Klai Yisrael. The Shidduch crisis, also never before. Boys and girls crying silently, their dreams and hopes 
slipping away in the years. We say in Ayme that was written so long ago, but today we have our own Ayme Hayolanu. So many broken engagements. I was involved in, in girls and boys writing Shtare Mechila to each other. When they were engaged, they were looking forward to writing Shtare Ksuva. Divorce, so rampant. The Shekhinah is in Bezdin. When, a, when, a, when a, a man is giving his wife a divorce, the Shekhinah is crying. He says it's the destruction of a Mizbeach, the breaking of a Mizbeach, the breaking of a family. Agunos, women who want to get married, who their husbands are not allowing them. Young widows, young orphans, anti-Semitism, poverty, sickness, disease. Oymeh Hayolano, who would have ever believed that this number one kinais would change in such a way that we in our generation could write such a kinais? So the question is, why? So I'd like to read you the story so we can understand a little bit. In the times of Yirmiyahu, Yirmiyahu was actually in jail and there was a king, Yehoyakam. He hated Yirmiyahu very much. And in the fourth year of his reign, 18 years before the Chorban, HaKadosh Baruch Hu commanded Yirmiyahu to prepare an Eicha on a scroll and because he was in jail, he sent his disciple Baruch ben Nariya to the king. And he brought this scroll. And they opened it up, and one of the king's officers began to read. Yerushalayim sits in solitude. Who cares? Responded Yehoyakim, as long as I remain king. She weeps bitterly in the night. Who cares? He shrugged, as long as I remain king. Judah has gone into exile because of its suffering. Who cares? As long as I am still king. The roads of Zion are mourning. Who cares? I am still king. Her adversaries have become her ruling monarch. That I will never accept. I must remain king. Yoyokam took a razor and cut out the name of Hashem from the scroll and threw Hashem's name into a roaring fire and burnt it until everything turned into ashes. And of course we know that he was punished very, very much and he died in the streets. But I think it's a very important lesson. I just read you a whole list of Oymeha Yolano. And Baruch Hashem, many of us are not on that list. Not in Aguna. Not cutting themselves. Not doing drugs. So it's not my problem. What the king was saying is that as long as I'm okay, as long as I'm king, Eretz Yisrael can fall, Judah can fall, Eretz Yisrael can fall, as long as I'm okay, who cares? That person who feels that way is a person who could cut Hashem's name out of a scroll and burn it. Because that person is only interested in how his life is going. And therefore, every single person in Klai Yisrael has to say, Look what is going on with us. Even if I'm not on Rabbi Wallerstein's list, 
Baruch Hashem. That was his Avera. And the whole thing is based on, the whole Tisha book is based on something I speak a lot about, Kafui Toiv. It started, didn't start in the destruction of the Beis HaMikdash. It started with the Maraglim. The Maraglim were the first one who caught the Tishabov. They came back on Tishabov and cried about Eretz Yisrael. That's where it started. It didn't start with Sinaskinam. It didn't, it didn't start in the Beis HaMikdash. It started way before that. It started by the Maraglim. What did it start with? It started with them coming back and saying that we don't appreciate what Hashem gave us. You can't go into Eretz Yisrael. There are giants. We are scared. Instead of saying, Hashem took us out of Mitzrayim. Hashem split the Yam. Hashem gave us the Torah. How dare we speak against HaKadosh Baruch Hu. They had a Kfira of Torah, which led to Korach. Korach had the same Kfira. Korach said, I'm a Levi. I'm not happy with being a Levi. I want to be a Kohen. He also didn't appreciate what he had. So Korach Vadosai also went down. The basis of Sinaschinam is not appreciating what you have. Because if I appreciate what I have, then I'm very happy with what you have. Because what you have has nothing to do with what I have. And this is something we just have to, it's very, very hard. But this is something that we have to work on. Kleistral has to work on. And part of it we can learn from this king. He didn't care if everybody else was going down as long as he was okay. I have my shidduch and I have my house and I have my husband and I have my kids and I have a bank account and I'm happy. So you know what? It's really bad, all these other things. But I'm still a king and everything is okay. And this is what Yirmiyahu was saying. The reason that we say this, that we read this whole story, is for us to understand that that will lead to burning Hashem's name. That's where it will lead. A person who doesn't care what everybody else around him is suffering, that's a person who's a kafoy, and in the end, will have no connection to HaKadosh Baruch because really, they're just so self-centered and they're just worried about, that. I, I, my daughter's married, all my kids are married, so okay, fine. I, I spoke about it the last, last Shabbos, that we have to help the girls that are in New York, that are in apartments that we don't know about, that need Shaduchim, who came from California and Chicago, and some of you are sitting in here, and they haven't been read a Shidduch in a year, because of my, my kids are married, so what do I care? And I say we have to take on, in Flatbush, we have to take on, everybody has to take a girl from out of town who doesn't have someone ready Shaduchim and, and make them their daughter. We have to show our that we're not this king. And that if my daughter's married and I have everything, but someone doesn't have what they need, then I am not happy. And I can't go to sleep at night. And that's called Abbas Chinam. And if we have that, Abbas Chinam, then the Beis will be will be once again built. But the first thing we need to do is we have to allow the Shechina into our homes. And we got to go home tonight and we got to clean out like the like like the Hashmanam did, we have to clean out the zaina that's in my bedroom, that that screen that I keep looking at, the zaina that's in the kitchen, that screen that I keep looking at, and my phone that I keep looking at. All these pictures, nachrios mean strangers. All these strange pictures that I'm looking at on my screen that don't belong in my base hamigdash because I'm not letting my father, my tati, my hakadosh baruch I'm not allowing him into my house because he will not come into such a Kaddish Kedoshim. When there's a Titus in his Kaddish Kedoshim. He ran, he went to Shemayim. 
And that's the first thing that we need to do. We need to say to Akash Baruch Hu, tonight, I'm sorry. I'm sorry, Tati, that I threw you out of my house and you can't come into my room because you can't come into my room if I have that stuff in my room. Yeah, I have a mezuzah. Sure, the Kodesh Kedoshim was there. Titus went in, he did what he did anyway. Or HaKadosh was there, even though it said the HaKadosh was hidden. But everything was there. Yeah, you have a mezuzah on your door, so what? So what? You have the mezuzah on the mezbeach. That's the screen that you're looking at. So Kodesh Baruch is not allowed into your room. So we threw him out of his house and now we don't let him into our house. I'm not crazy. I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not talking about you shouldn't have internet to do your classes and do your studies. That's not what I'm talking about. That's not at all what I'm talking about. You know exactly what I'm talking about. And it's on our phones and it's everywhere. And, and the Shekhinah just, just following us around and just like, come on, just clean up so I could, so I could come into your room so that when you're diving, you could talk and feel that I'm here. A lot of girls come to me and they say, well, I don't feel Hashem. I feel so far away. You are far away. He, he doesn't want to come into your room. He doesn't want to come into your kitchen. He doesn't want to come into your house. You're right, you are far away. That's not fair. He doesn't have a house. So we need to make that house. And Shrevega Miguel said, so it's a bracha to sit and cry. My tati is homeless. I want to tell you a story. As far away as we are, I said this story a while back, but I want to show you that on the other hand, not that long ago, not that long ago, we were very, very close. So this is a true story about someone, some of you probably know him, Rav Yosef Wallace, who was director of Arachim in Israel. And um, he talked to Project Witness about uh, Judah Wallace, who was his father. And you have to hear, this is an unbelievable story. So, so Judah Wallace was in Dachau, in the Holocaust. And he was a little boy. And... Um, they lined up and they were they were taking the people to the gas chamber and he was a little boy he was on the side he wasn't on that line and someone took a bag and they saw this young boy and they threw the bag to him he thought that it was food so he took it and he hid it behind his back and then they took these people to the gas chamber and they killed them when he opened it he found that it was a pair of tefillin and he was very scared because he knew that if he'd be caught carrying tefillin, he would be put to death. He couldn't have tefillin in a concentration camp. So he hid, the tefillin, he hid the tefillin under his shirt and went to the bunkhouse in the morning, right before they had roll call. While he was still in the bunkhouse, he put on the tefillin. His mazel, a German officer, walked in and he ordered him to remove the tefillin. And he saw the number, everyone had a number, he saw the number on Judah's hand, and he wrote it down. When it came to, you know, every day they had this gathering of people, so they had all the Jews line up every single day, they did the count, and they went by their numbers. And when he saw Judah's number, the officer waved the tefillin, he had taken the tefillin away in the air, and he said, Dog, I sentenced you to death by public hanging for wearing these. So they placed Judah, this little young boy, young man, on a stool, and a noose was placed around his neck. Before he was hung, the officer, the German Nazi, said, dog, you Jew, you dog, what is your last wish? And Judah answered, to wear my tefillin one last time. The officer was dumbfounded. He handed Judah his, his tefillin. I said this over to some of my boys, can't get them to wear tefillin in the morning, look at this kid, his last wish 
They're putting a noose around his neck is to put on a pair of tefillin. So when they put, they put, when Judah put them on, he said the what he's supposed to say when they put on the tefillin. And in English, it means I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me with righteousness and with justice and with kindness and with mercy, mercy. And you shall know Hashem. It is hard for us to picture this Jew, Judah, with a noose around his neck, wearing tefillin on his head and arm. But that was the scene that the entire camp was forced to watch as they waited the impending hanging of the Jew who had dared to break the rule against wearing tefillin. Even women from the adjoining camp were lined up at the barbed wire fence that separated them from the men's camp forced to watch this horrible sight. As Judah turned to watch the silent crowd, he saw tears in many people's eyes. Even at that moment, as he was about to be hung, he was shocked. Jews were crying. How was it possible that they still had tears left to cry? And for a stranger, were there those tears, where were those tears coming from? Impulsively in Yiddish, he called out, Yidin, Yidin, don't cry. I am wearing tefillin. I am the victor. Don't you understand? I am the winner. The German officer understood Yiddish, because Yiddish and German is the same, and was infuriated. He said to Judah, you dog, you think you are a winner? Hanging is too good for you. You are going to have another kind of death. Judah, my father, was taken from the stool and the noose was removed from his neck. He was forced into a squatting position with two huge rocks replaced under his arms. Then he was told that he would be receiving 25 lashes to the head, the head on which he had dared to put tefillin. The officer told him that if he dropped even one of the rocks, he would be shot immediately. In fact, because this was such an extremely painful death, the officer advised him, drop the rocks now. You will never survive the 25 lashes to the head. Nobody ever does. Judah's response to him was, no, I won't give you the pleasure. It's a true story. At the 25th lash, Judah lost consciousness and was left for dead. He was about to be dragged to a pile of corpses, after which he would have been burned in a ditch when another Jew saw him, shoved him to the side, and covered his head with a rag so people didn't realize he was alive. Eventually, after he recovered consciousness fully, he crawled to the nearest bunkhouse that was on raised piles and hid under it, until he was strong enough to come out under his own power. Two months later, he was liberated. During the hanging and beating episode, a 17-year-old girl had been watching the events from the woman's side of the fence. After the liberation, she made her way to the men's camp and found Judah. She walked over to him and said, I've lost everyone. I don't want to be alone anymore. I saw what you did the day when the officer wanted to hang you. Will you marry me? The rest is history. Rabbi Yosef Wallace's parents, for this couple became his parents, walked over to the Kleisenberger Rebbe, Oliver Shalom, and requested that he perform the marriage ceremony. The Kleisenberger Rebbe, whose Kiddush Hashem is legendary, wrote out a ksuba by hand from memory and married the couple. Rabbi Wallace has the handwritten ksuba in his possession to this day. How long ago was this? This was 60 years ago. Who doesn't hear me? Okay. 60, 70 years ago look how our generation changed look how easy it was to find the shidduch she went there was no there were no shatchanim there were no papers and things to fill out she understood that a boy was willing to die to wear a pair of tefillin so she searched the camp for a boy named Judah and today their child is one of the biggest in Kirov in Eretz Yisrael. 
That was, if you think about it, the most terrible place, Dachau, a concentration camp, was a Migdash. For Asli Migdash, for Shechanti Besoicham. Even in Dachau, in this terrible place, there was a boy and a girl that Kushbarchu dwelled within them. And that's all the Shechina wants. He wants all of us to be that base Hamigdash so that Kushbarchu could dwell within us. I want to end with a story that I've said. Some of you have heard it, but I think that it's very, very much about, about Tishabav. So there was a young boy and he got a job on Wall Street and he used to go by this very fancy, fancy restaurant on Wall Street and in the front of this restaurant's window was a bottle of wine and the label on the bottle of wine said 1895 a year this boy was curious 1895, a bottle of wine more than a hundred years old so he knocked on the door and the major D came to the door and he said, sir you have a bottle of wine in the window it says 1895 is that the price, is that a date, what is that he says, no, that's the date that's the center of our whole restaurant is based, this is like a tourists come to see it and people come to see it very, very old French wine and the boy said well, if somebody wanted to buy it, like, how much would it be? And he said, listen, little boy, you're never going to have enough money to buy it. I know, I know, I know. Just tell me, how much would it be? $10,000. So a bottle of wine from 1895. He made up his mind. He's going to get that bottle of wine. No matter how long it takes him, he's going to get that bottle of wine. So he gets his job. He's a male boy nothing minimum wage and every day on his way he would come to that window and he would talk to the bottle and he was like you need to know something bottle one day you're going to be mine all mine nobody else's just me and you and the maitre d would see this and you'd think this kid's really sugar. Kid, every day on his work, we'd talk, and sometimes on his way back from work, he would just stare at the window, and he would just look at this bottle, and it would be like he was in a dream. This went on for one year, two years, three years, and he saved $100, $50, but every single day, he would talk to that bottle, and he's like, don't go anywhere! One day we're going to get married, me and you. It's just going to be the two of us. And you're going to be all mine. I'm a shigana. Comes to work one day. He gets called in by his boss. And the boss says, You have done such an amazing work these past years. We have decided we're going to train you as a broker in the firm. And here's a bonus. Once you become a broker, we give you a bonus. This is for you. Tomorrow you have an office on the 15th floor. No more mail mail room. We're very proud to have you. He's like, thank you, thank you. And he feels it's a big wad of money. 
And the first thing he thinks is the bottle of wine. So, he doesn't want anyone to see. He goes into the bathroom. He closes the door. He opens up the envelope. And he starts to count. 100, 200, 300, 5,000, 6,000, 7,000, 8,000. He's going crazy. I don't believe it. 9,000. And he's forgetting about the money. The money means nothing to him. And he's like, 9,100 the bottle. 9,200 the bottle. And he's going to get this bottle. This is his dream. This is his fantasy. This is his whole life. It totally encompassed him. It's what he's all about. He's going crazy. The bottle says he's going to teach his major deal lesson. So he goes home. He has some money saved up. He says, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to wait till my birthday. On my birthday, I'm going to get a limo. I'm going to get a tux. I'm going to do this correctly. I'm going to come. I'm going to make a reservation. I'm going to come to that restaurant. And I'm going to buy that bottle. And the next day he goes by the window and he's like, darling, we're going to be together forever. I got you. I got the money. He starts whispering. The guy's looking at him. I'm Michigan. He got every single day. He's Michigan. Now he's talking to her like, it's a, like he's talking to a wife. He's, like, he's looking at him. This kid is nuts. Whatever. It's fine. Comes his birthday the night before. So he shaves and he calls him up. And he says, tomorrow night, I'd like to make a reservation. Yes, what's your name? He gives him a fake name. He gives him a name. He says, for how many? For one. Where would you like to sit? Facing the front. What, what part of the front? The bottle. Okay? So the girl takes, the, takes, it, takes it down. He gets dressed up, slicks his hair back, puts on his tuxedo. The limo comes to pick him up. He's got his yellow tuxedo. You, you would never recognize him in a million years. He comes to the restaurant. They're like, sir, you made a reservation. I made a reservation. He sits down. Major D doesn't recognize him. He's all dressed up. He sits down at the table for one. He says, fine, can we get you something to eat? Of course, he's in the restaurant. They bring him the menu. He never read such a menu. He's not one of these guys that knows anything about this. He turned it the wrong way. They turned it the right way. Right? He doesn't know how to... And, and he says to the waitress, listen, I don't know anything about this. You, give, you bring me the best, best entree, best appetizer, the best soup. I trust you. And she's thinking, tip, you know, the guy's dressed in a tuxedo. He came in a limousine. I mean, this is going to be, you know, a big tip. So she takes really good care of him. Then she brings him the wine list. He says, oh, no. No, I don't need that. They're like, well, this is, you know, we have all our wines on here. He goes, no, no. You see that bottle in the window? That's the bottle I want. She goes, no, no, you can't. You, it's, not, it's not really for sale. It's, it's a very special bottle. He goes, I know. He says, call the maitre d'. Major D comes over and he says to the Major D, I want to buy that bottle. And the Major D says, Sir, um, that's the main bottle of our. We have two bottles like that that one, and we have one downstairs, and, and these are like the main bottles. Everyone comes to see them. I, I can't, I can't. I, 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 he says, What do you mean you can't? You told me a few years ago that it's for $10,000, I could buy it. And he looks at the kid and he goes, Are you kidding me? He goes, yeah, I have the money. And he takes out $10,000. And he hands it to the maitre d'. A deal is a deal. I want that bottle. Maitre d' says, oh, word is a word, 100%. But it's the way it's put into the window. We have to get the window dresser. We have to get it out. It's going to take us some time. Okay, no problem, no rush. And he's like, well, Hashem, I got what I wanted. 
So this waitress comes over and says, "Listen, um, can I get you some wine in the meanwhile?" He says, "Sure." What like I don't know. What you know? I'm not really a wine drinker. That's really what. I, she says, "Okay, we'll give you some white wine with the fish." And then, anyway, to make a long story short. She takes a glass of white wine, cheap white wine, then he takes a glass of red wine, then he takes a glass of sangria, and he's very, he never drank before, and he's getting very tipsy and very, he's getting very drunk and he's getting very dizzy, and, and he's totally forgot why he was there. And now once he's drunk, he keeps drinking because he's not, he's totally out of control. And finally, they bring him this bottle, and they put it in front of him, and he looks at the label. He says, 1895? Oh, that's an old bottle. Okay, open it up. They're like, well, for $10,000, don't you want to open it? And this whole time that he was dreaming about this bottle, one of those fantasies was, well, he's going to open the, he's going to take the cork, and he's going to take it out, and he's going to smell it. And it's going to smell like 1895. He's like, all these thoughts. And he's like, no. You open it up. She says, you sure? Yeah, I can't even find the cork. He's so drunk. So she takes it. And she opens the bottle of wine. And she gives him the cork to smell. He says, smells disgusting. And he throws it across the room. Okay. Would you like me, she says, would you like me to pour some wine? You spent a lot of money on this wine. Yeah, no, it's my wine. Nobody can touch it. I'll pour it. And he takes the bottle, Nebuch, and his hands are shaking. And he pours it, and he totally misses the cup. And it goes all over the tablecloth, and all over his shirt and his suit. And he's like... Wow, I didn't even get a drop in the cup. Aren't I great? Totally blitzed, totally out of his mind. And they're all standing there and they're like, oh my God, just just poured out a $10,000, just poured out a $10,000 bottle of wine. He says, give me the bottle. And they're like, okay, at least we'll have the bottle with the label. He says, what's a bottle of wine that's empty worth? Then he takes the bottle throws it against the wall smashes into a hundred pieces and the whole place now the whole restaurant's watching this and they're like Michigan and the owner the major D is like we have to get him out of here he's really really drunk and all of a sudden his head just hits the table he's fast asleep three hours later they're closing they shake him they said you gotta get up you gotta go and he's like where's my bottle I I was supposed to get my bottle of wine. I was, I was waiting and left. I remember, where's my bottle? And they're like, sir, you, you, you look, it's all over the tablecloth. It's all over your shirt. He goes, no, that's not my wine. And he starts screaming and he starts yelling and he can't believe it. He's screaming, can't be. You've got nothing. You're a bunch of robbers. You never gave me the bottle. You got me drunk. I want my bottle of wine. I'm calling the police. Fine, we'll call the police. They call the police. They stole from me. They never gave me my bottle. This whole thing was a fix. And they're like, it's not a problem. We have a camera. Let's go upstairs and watch. Girls, can you imagine? Could you imagine when he watched that movie? The pain? His whole life? His fantasy? To watch him pour it on his shirt and the tablecloth 
and throw the bottle across the room. And he can't argue, and he can't say it's your fault, and you fooled me, because there's a movie of him exactly destroying the one thing in his life that he loved more than anything else, that he worked, that he dreamt, that he fantasized, that he couldn't wait for. And now it's all gone. And he walks out, so broken and broken. Everything he dreamt for in a moment was lost. And the next day, he comes to work. And the boss says, I'm really sorry, but you're fired. And he says, why? He says, because people from the firm were in a restaurant last night, and you were drunk. And you threw glass bottles across the room. You don't belong. We can't trust you as a broker with money. You can't work for us anymore. And on his birthday, he lost everything. His dreams and his job. On his birthday. And one thing led to another, and he became a street person. And he lived not far from Wall Street, in the park, in a tent, with a bunch of bums. And the store put another bottle in the window. But now he was dressed in rags, and he had no dreams. And he realized that that bottle he would never have a totally broken human being living in the streets in rags. And one day, two years later on his birthday, sleeping in his tent with the rest of the bums, filthy and dirty, starving, there's a tap on his shoulder. It's his birthday. And there's a man standing there and he says, Happy birthday. He says, Who are you? He said, I was there in that restaurant. I saw what happened that day. Here's a present. And he hands him the other bottle. And he says, Who are you? Why? I watched you suffer the last two years. I realized how important this is to you. But you can't have this bottle as a bum. You gotta just get yourself cleaned up. We gotta get you a job. And then we'll make a l'chaim together. This story is the story of Klai Yisrael. This is the story of Tishabov, the birthday of Moshiach. We were given something that we waited for in Mitzrayim, 40 years in the Midbar. We dreamt of a Beis Hamikdash. We dreamt of Korbanos. We dreamt of being able to see the Shekhinah. But what did we do? We got drunk. We got drunk with all the cheap wine 
Shvichas Davim, Gilei Arayos. Shvichas Davim doesn't only be murdering someone, it's embarrassing someone. Gilei Arayos, adultery. The lack of Tarzan Mishpacha. The lack of Shemin The lack of Shmir Sinayim. Making the things in our life, the materialistic things in our life, the ego shall dissolve, the money and the materialistic things in our life, making that the thing that we bow down to, that we believe in. Money can get you anywhere. All the cheap wines. Yitzhara served us. And we got drunk. And we took all this Kedusha. And we just poured it out. And we lost everything. I can tell you as a father. I can tell you as a parent. And I'm sure a lot of the girls in this room have this dream. And a lot of the parents in this room have this dream. We have this dream. We're going to get married. And we're going to have children. That bottle of wine. Right? That's... We're going to get married. And we're going to have Shalom Bayez. We're going to have a beautiful home. We're going to have beautiful kids. We're going to teach them Torah. We're going to go to the zoo. We're going to give them time. We're going to give them attention. I can't wait till I have that kid. And then we have those children. And the waitress comes with a cell phone. And the waitress comes with an iPhone. And with an internet. And with friends. And we get so drunk that we forget what our dream was and how many times we passed that window and we said to Mitzvah Hashem when I have a child I'm going to be the greatest parent even if my parents weren't great to me I'm going to give them so much time I'm going to give my husband so much time I'm going to break my, my, my Yitzhahara for all the things that I have I'm going to change how many of us have changed since last Tisha B'Av and we have this dream of this thing in the window and the Yitzhahara comes and he gives us all this cheap wine and we get so drunk and we say to Hashem it's not fear and Hashem says just watch the video you're the one who threw me out of my house. You're the one who threw me out of your house. By putting the things you put into your house, you threw me out of your house. You threw the bottle of wine across the room. Not me. But the day will come, girls. On that terrible day of Tisha B'av, when the bottle of wine was broken and smashed into a hundred pieces, when we lost our job, I'm a Kayan, when we all lost our job in the base Hamigdash, when we ended up living in tents in Gullahs, here in, in America and all over the world. The day will come, Hashem The day will come when there will be a knock on the door. And the will say, I saw all your pain. And here's a new bottle of wine. And this one's a better bottle of wine than any other one because the other bottle of wine was in the window, it was warm. The wine was probably no good anyway, but this one was in a fridge in the basement. And that's the base of Midrash, the third base of Midrash of Aish that comes from Shemayim, that is a bottle of wine that can never, ever be broken again. I want to end with something that happened today. I very much believe that what happens on the day that I'm going to speak is a simon to everybody else. And with this, we'll end. So, about four weeks ago, maybe five weeks ago, I got a phone call that, could I speak to a woman... Could, could this person give my number to this lady who has a three and a half year old girl her name is Penina Basyafa you should all down for her 
And this little girl was getting stomach aches and stomach aches and fever and stomach aches and fever. And finally she took her to the doctor and they did a blood test. Her cat was totally crazy. And her diagnosis was leukemia. Three and a half year old, beautiful little blonde kid with these big eyes. So this lady asked, could you give, could I, I said, sure, give her my number. And this lady called me, she said, Rewalstein, I really, I need chizuk. I, 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 this is my daughter, my three and a half year old. She's three and a half. She didn't, she didn't smoke cigarettes. All the excuses they give for cancer. She's three and a half. There's no excuse for this. You have to give me chizuk. You have to give her chizuk. I said, okay, okay, come over. This little kid walks in. Beautiful, beautiful. Little three and a half Jew- year old Jewish girl with blonde hair, these big eyes, a little squeaky voice. Hi, Rabbi Wallerstein. I'm like, hi, Paulette. I call her Paulette or Panina. So you're not feeling well? No, I'm not feeling well, Rabbi Wallerstein. And her mother's like, could you give us some chizik? It happens to be that the Tasha Rebbe gave, sent me a few haze, silver haze, Gebench the haze, they're called, blessed by the Tasha Rebbe. I said, how am I going to give this kid chizik? Just by words? Let me give her something. I went upstairs to my room. I had one of these Gebench the haze, and I came downstairs and I said, Paulette, you see this hay? I want you to put this on your necklace, and for the rest of your life, I don't want you to ever take it off. And she said, what's the hay for? And I said, Hashem. So she put it on. And I want to tell you about the phone call I got today. So she took a whole series of chemo. And um, her mother called me up today. She said, well, Wallstein, I have to tell you what happened. They put a port uh, in her shoulder. It's an operation. So they could put the chemo through the port. So they had to put her under. So this little squeaky kid was always very sweet. So the nurse said, listen, we have to take everything off. We have to take your necklace off. She said, my daughter began to scream. They never heard her scream. She's screaming, you can't take my necklace off. So like, why can't we take your necklace off? Because Rabbi Wallerstein gave me this hay. Now these are not Jewish women. They're like, okay. But we're just going to take it off for the operation and then we'll put it back on. She's like, you can't touch it. No one's allowed to touch it. Meanwhile, her mother told me that every time she's in pain from the chemo, she would hold the hay and she would say, Hashem, take away my pain. Mikam Chisro, three and a half year old girl. She said every time she was in pain, Hashem, take away my pain. We need to feel the same way, everyone here. She could always hold on to Hashem and say, Hashem, take away my pain. But the story's not over. So the nurse realized, she's not getting that hay off this kid's neck. So they waited till the anesthesiologist put her out. The mother told me this today. And they took the hay and they put it in a little plastic bag next to her head while they did the operation. When they finished doing the operation, they immediately put the hay back around her neck because they were scared if she would wake up and find out that they took that hay off, they'd have to pay for it. So she wakes up and the first thing she looks at is to see if her hay is still there. She said to me, Rabbi Wallerstein, I want to thank Hashem for giving me my daughter back. But she also told me 
that the test came back today. There is not one cell of leukemia in her body left. Hashivenu Hashem Elecho Benashuva Chadishimenu Kikadam Don't let go of that hey. Don't let go of Hashem ever. And next year, we'll be in the base of Dash. Thank you. You've just experienced another Torah class brought to you by TorahAnytime.com.